Tom. And Michael, we want you to preach as if you're at home and just be that familiar, okay? Amen. How are y'all doing tonight? Really, that bad. One more time. How are y'all doing tonight? You know, he left out the best part of my introduction. I was glad that you said it was going to be a, a short introduction because oftentimes people kind of tell my real claim to fame. But here's my real claim to fame. I have eight children. Gotta let that sink in because you're waiting for the punchline. There is no punchline. I have eight children. Boy, I should put it like this. My wife birthed eight children. Yeah. But that's the warm-up. Here's the real claim to fame. I have 24 grandchildren. Anybody here a grandparent? Let me see your hand. You're a grandparent. Isn't that the best part of life? Yeah, if I had known how great grandparenting was, I'd have skipped the parenting part and gone right to the grandkids. Our oldest son is right here. He, I'm the senior pastor because we have like a movement and we're planning a church near every U.S. military base in the world. So that's a bunch of those and we're pretty deep into that, pretty excited about what God's doing. So the largest church is like the mother church and that's led by this guy. He's the lead pastor of Manor Church in Fayetteville, Fort Bragg, that area. So I'm privileged to hang out with him. Um, he's the best of, really in many ways, he and, he, he's, he's the best of both his mom and me. So yeah, he really is. Which is not saying a lot because I'm terrible and my wife is great, but it balances out in the end. No, listen, I want to tell you the secret. I'm going to preach on this. Actually, I'm not. I, I, I'll tell you the truth. I'm not going to preach on this, but I'm going to pretend like it. So I want to tell you the secret of being the favorite grandparent. You got notes? You need to write this down. I told every other grandparent when we had our first, actually his, his, his brother, the number two son, his brother, right after him, married, and they were the first one to birth a child, and then their oldest son came right afterwards. My grand, first granddaughter was born on Christmas Day. That's the way to start it. So I told all the grandparents back in those days that I would be the favorite grandparent, and they said, that's so arrogant. How can you say that? Here's the secret. I will always have chocolate on my person or in my proximity at all times. And you can attest, kids come up to see him and eat lunch with daddy, you know, on those days off. And they come first to Papa's office, and Papa's got chocolate everywhere. I got, I got chocolate stashed. Listen, if, if, there, if there's a great giant war, if there's a World War III or whatever, and you wind up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, come to me, because I got chocolate stashed all over that office. It's hidden in places where no one's going to find it. Um, and I save it for grandkids. And I got a ton of it. There's, it. The jars never go empty. I've even got one where you're supposed to put like a coin and turn it and the stuff comes out. But you don't have to put a coin in. You just turn it and chocolate comes out. It's like magic, you know. It's for free. It's like the gospel. Somebody already paid. So it took a minute. Okay. All right. You're with me though. You're a good audience already. I like you. So, yeah, so they come, and I remember one particular time they came in, and I gave Jaden, their oldest, a piece, and then I said, take a second. And so Brooklyn came, I gave her a piece, then I gave her a second, and then they run down to Daddy's office. And he comes back with little Jaden and said, look at him. He's got chocolate all around his mouth. I said, and? Well, he came to eat lunch with me. Yes. Well, you can't do this. I said, no, I can do this. That's, that's what a grandparent does. Amen. Okay, you, you can either learn that and have chocolate, or you can learn to have car keys and you give the, 
kid when they get old enough your car to drive, but that's not going to happen. Chocolate's better. Everybody agree? If you agree with me, say amen. Yeah, okay. Amen. Well, I want to start with a story. It's a true story. And I'm saying it's a true story because you're going you're, you're to say this, this cannot be a true story. And you've heard this, Pastor Mark, you've heard this before, but I love this story so much, I just wanted to tell it again. I, I get in the shower sometimes and tell it to myself. It, it is, it's a true story. So there's a fellow flying, a pilot, flying a 737 into LAX, Los Angeles International Airport. He's flying it in, and he, he radios the tower that he believes he has seen an unidentified flying object, a UFO. And so when the, when the people in the tower ask him to please describe the UFO, he says, it appears to be a man sitting in a lawn chair holding a rifle. I'm telling you, it's a true story. You can look it up later. The guy's name is Larry Walters. Don't look it up now. Unless the sermon gets boring, then do anything. But don't look it up until the sermon's boring. As it turns out, a truck driver named Larry Walters decided that he was, was tired of just sitting around and he wanted to get a better look at his neighborhood, for real, a better perspective. So he went to the Army Surplus Store. Army Surplus Store is where they sell the old gear that the Army no longer uses. So they sell it at a cheap rate to these people and they resell it to citizens so you can have a cool jacket or whatever. So he went in and, and he found out that there are weather balloons, old Army weather balloons in this, in this Army Surplus Store. And the thing is, one of those weather balloons is pretty big. It, it's about as big as this podium round. And when it's filled with helium, it'll lift, a, it'll lift a good amount of weight, 75, 100 pounds, no problem. Because they used to use them way back when to, to put pieces of equipment to measure storms and things on these weather balloons and let them drift up into the sky. So when he went into the Army Surplus store, he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And he bought all they had. He bought 75 weather balloons. And he took him home, and he got his neighbor. He said, here's my plan. He said, I want, to t- I want to take a lawn chair. I promise you it's a two-story. I want to take a lawn chair, and I want to put it in the back of my pickup truck, and I want you to tie it to the back of the pickup truck. Then help me blow up all these weather balloons. I promise, 75 weather balloons he blows up and attaches to the, to the, the chair. The idea is, oh, and by the way, he also gets out a pellet gun, BB gun and a peanut butter sandwich and a six pack of beer. His plan was to cut the rope, float gently up over the neighborhood till he got to the desired height. Then he was going to shoot some of the weather balloons with the pellet gun. So he kind of stayed just hanging there for a while. And then when he was ready to come back down, of course, after he consumed the beer and finished eating his sandwich, he was going to shoot some of the weather balloons and come gently back down into his backyard. The problem was, (laughs) it's a true story. The problem was when the neighbor finally, when they did all that, got it all ready, and he signaled the neighbor to cut the rope that was holding the chair into the pickup truck, instead of floating up into the air, the old boy shot up in the air like a rocket. (laughs) At 2,000 feet, they they figured out that at at 2,000 feet, he, he, he began to pass out. But before he passed out, when he realized what was happening as he was shooting up in the air, the first thing he did, true story, was crack open the six-pack of beer. <laughs> and he began to drink. Maybe he thought, this was it. I might as well go out. You know, I don't know what he was thinking. At 2,000 feet, he passed out. 
At 16,000 feet, that's where the pilot of the 737 saw him. And here's the funniest part of the story, when the, to me anyway. When the officials got him back down to planet Earth, they fined him $1,500. Is there like a rule or a law that says you can't fly a lawn chair, I don't know, without a license or maybe... Maybe you can't fly a long armchair. I, I don't know what they were thinking, but they find him. They probably said, "Do something to this guy. Charge him fifteen hundred dollars." I don't know. They find him, and then they ask him. The, a reporter asked him, "Why did you do it?" And he said, "I just wanted a better perspective on my life, and I got tired of sitting around." <laughs> and if we're honest, I think sometimes we're a little bit like long chair Larry. If we're honest, I think sometimes we get to the place where we feel like we're running around in the same circle that we were running around in before. That we get up and run off to work and collect our check and come home and eat and get up and run off to work and check our, collect our check and come home and eat and get up and run off to work and come back, maybe do some things on the weekends and Monday we start all over again. It's almost like we run out there and run around and come back. Run out there, run around and come back. And that's why we have conferences like this to say, wait, we don't have to have 2020 be a repeat of 2019. We, we, can, actually, we can actually go someplace. We can actually move in the, in the direction that God has called us to go, not just individually, but also corporately. But if we're going to move corporately, then enough of us have to move individually in order for the whole church to begin to move. I want to tell you a story, another one. This one's out of my own life. And... It sounds a little narcissistic to do that because I sound like I'm talking about me, but if you'll just stay with me, you'll see that I'm really not talking about me at all. It's not really my story. It's Jesse's story. And maybe at the end, it'll be your story. When I was in Bible college, you know, I wanted like everything that every young Bible college student wanted. I was married, didn't have any kids yet, but I wanted to be the best pastor ever. I wanted to pastor a big, giant church, and I wanted to plant a bunch of churches, and I wanted to write books. I wanted to be on the cover of magazines. I wanted to speak in conferences. Don't judge me. In your chosen profession, you've had those kind of thoughts as well when you were young. So that's, I wanted to be apostolic, and people say, man, we need that guy. We want that guy. That guy's wise. I just wanted all the gifts that were there. Evangelism, I'll take that. Apostolic, I'll take that. Prophetic, I'll take that. Evangelism, I'll take that. I'll teaching, I'll take it. I'll take all the gifts. I want to be the greatest that ever lived. And I can remember praying those kind of prayers. I'd read something in the Bible and say, Lord, I want that. And somebody would preach a passionate message, and I'd say, I want to be able to preach better than that. I'd see the altar filling. I want to fill twice the altar. And I was riding back and forth to, to work every single day with two guys, Tom Seifert and Fidel Jimenez. We worked at UPS, United Parcel Service. We loaded package cars really early in the morning for really great pay and really great insurance. It was a fantastic job. So I could get up at 2.30, be at work at 3, work for four hours, come home and be paid for 8. Go to school and do all the ministry stuff I was doing. And so we got to be friends and we would get in each other's lives and pray for each other when there was a need. And, and Tom was usually on the receiving end of that prayer. Because Tom and Karen... We, Laura and I eventually bought their house. I mean, we, we, we'd known them, and they were close to us. We eventually bought their house, but Karen had a problem. She, had a, she, she was never able to, to, keep, to keep a pregnancy. First trimester, she'd get pregnant. 
and then she'd lose the baby. And then months later, she'd get pregnant, and we'd pray and ask the Lord, Lord, please protect this baby. Let this baby live in Jesus' name. She had five miscarriages. One day, Tom got in the car after he was picking us up, and he said, I want you all to pray. Karen's pregnant. And, of course, to be honest, you know, we all kind of, all, Fidel and I kind of swallowed hard and thought, here we go again. May it not be. We prayed like mad. Every day when Tom would get in the car, Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for Karen that you bless this baby and, and let this little baby take hold and be nine months inside the womb and born safe and sound in Jesus' name. First trimester, everything was great. Second trimester, everything was great. Beginning of the third trimester, it looked fine. Later in the third trimester, and because she had so many miscarriages, she had more attention from her OBGYN and more visits and she was at what's supposed to be a routine visit toward the end of her, her third trimester, just before the baby was to be born. And the doctor said, Karen, you got to go to the emergency room immediately. We have to take this baby right now. So she did. And they took the baby by C-section immediately and took the baby away from, his name is Jesse, and took Jesse away from Karen and took him to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit which back in those days is nothing compared to what they have today. They did the best they could. And every day, every waking moment, Karen was on the other side of that little incubator-type glass looking at Jesse, just never able to touch him, but he was just right there. And finally, after the doctors did all they could do, they asked the nurses to bring Karen in. They took Jesse out of the little incubator, and they put him in Karen's arms, and for the first time, she held her baby as he was breathing his last breaths. And Jesse died and went to heaven. And I can remember being at the memorial service. I'll never forget this. It's the second most powerful day in my life after being born again, to be honest. I can remember being in that. I don't remember what the preacher said. I don't remember anything that happened outside of what happened inside here. But I remember what happened inside here. So I was praying and I was crying and I was actually crying for Jesse and also Karen and Tom. And, and I didn't want to question God. So I prayed and I said, Lord, my theology's good. I know you're good. I know that there's an answer that I obviously don't understand. But to be honest with you, I don't get it. If he's going to die, why not take him in the first trimester? Why, why go through this? He's never going to see a sunset. He's never going to see a sunrise. He's never going to run to the door when daddy comes home and grab him around the knees and say, daddy, daddy. And in the middle of my crying for Jesse, I want you to listen carefully. God spoke to me and said, Michael, Jesse has already heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yours is yet to be spoken You ever, you ever hear from God and it's just a, a word or a sentence? And if you try to share it with somebody, it doesn't really seem like it's that significant. But there's like an encyclopedia of meaning behind it. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? That's exactly what happened. A, a real simple statement. Michael, Jesse has already heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Which means he ran his race. He's already heard, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Yours is yet to be spoken. And then, don't judge me now. 
But I was in my 20s, okay? And then all of a sudden, all these, all these Bible verses began to unpack in my head. As I began to think about what he was saying, wait, Jesse's already heard well done? He's in three days. What did he do? And mine is yet to be spoken. And all of a sudden I began to think, like in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. This was one unexpected divine appointment. Let me kind of un- unpack it for you. Luke chapter 20, 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. And I, and I began to think in those moments, well, I've been doing this all wrong. I, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have to stand account before God for what he gave me. So if God gives me the answer to all my prayers, then I'm going to have to stand accountable for that in heaven. And, and the more you're given, the more is required, the more likely it is that you're not going to hear well done. So I began to try to back up a little bit. I said, Lord, hold it. Okay, all these prayers I've been praying, I, I changed my mind. I don't want all these gifts. I don't want all these talents. I don't want, I don't want all of that. I just want a really simple, clear, definable calling. Maybe just one great gift that I can just treasure and use for you because I want to die in here. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I'll make you ruler over much. And as I began to think about these ideas, now remember, you go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you. We're clear on that? But your reward in heaven is based on what you did with what you were given here. That's the point. You go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you, but your reward in heaven is based on what you did with what you were given here. And even in my 20s, I thought, I've probably wasted some time already in my life. I'm probably behind. And if, and I don't know how serious I've been about every Bible college class and the opportunities and do I really have what it takes to do those things? What if God called? So I try to back out of it. And as I try to back out of it, Lord, I want to undo these prayers. I began to realize that, wait a minute, Michael. God, God created you before the foundation of the world for good works. That's actually in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So, in other words, God decided what he was going to give me before he gave it to me. So then I thought, oh, that's not fair. I wasn't even consulted. I mean, and I, you, you, you're, you're big and you're God, and I can't undo it, and I'm, this, is, this, is not, this is not fair. I want to undo this. And I began to think, I mean, what happens if a guy is called to plant 4,000 churches? Think about it. That's a lot by anybody's imagination. 4,000 is like undoable. So then he plants 2,000 churches. I mean, anybody that plants 2,000 churches has got to be rock star famous, Right? So the guy plants 2,000 churches, and the next thing you know, everybody wants a piece of him. So he speaks at every conference, and he writes books, and he's on magazine covers, and he gets all excited and all caught up with with all of the stuff that he's done, planted 2,000 churches. I mean, he's planted 2,000 churches, and everyone thinks, oh, man, we want him to speak, and we want to read his books, and we want to meet him. So he's got a big, giant church, and he preaches there every week, and people think, oh, he's such a genius. What a great guy. We're so glad to have him. And he dies. And he stands before God with a calling to plant 4,000 churches. But he does what no human has ever done. He plants 2,000 churches. And he dies and stands. And all this is going on in my head while I'm crying. But now I'm not crying for Jesse. Don't judge me. Now I'm crying for me. Because I'm thinking, what if I don't hear well done? Am I serious enough? 
Am I dedicated enough? Do I love Jesus enough? Am I selfless enough? Which I knew at that moment. No, you're pretty selfish. Look at the prayers you've been praying. So he stands before God. The Lord says, oh, I've been waiting for you for years. Before you were born. Before your mom and dad even conceived you, I knew you were going to be here. I have loved you with an everlasting love. My love for you will never change. But I called you to plant 4,000 churches. And you planted 2,000. Which on earth seems like a lot. See, I began to understand. God doesn't measure in heaven like we measure on planet earth. Mediocre. Your reward, mediocre. Come on in. Say, Michael, can you really even say that? Yeah, have you ever read that passage of scripture where where Jesus talks about the four soils? I'm not going to get into breaking down the whole parable. You know that the three soils are bad soils. Basically, they never were believers. And the fourth soil is the good soil. And the Bible says that the seed goes into the good soil and it produces fruit. Watch this. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. You ever wonder what that meant? I did too. I thought, that's a strange statement. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Who cares what kind of fruit there is in terms of 30, 60, 100? It just matters that we produce the fruit, right? But no, apparently a God, it does matter. So, so I don't know if your kids are back in school yet. Uh, from the break, maybe they are. Um, ours are back in, in North Carolina. So if this were before the break, they'd get the report cards. Is that what you call them? We call these report cards. They, they get a report card kind of halfway through the year to let everyone know what they're doing. And so little Johnny comes in and he says, Dad, look, all my classes. I got a 30. Out of 100. <laughs> you all look at me like, 30, is that good or bad? <laughs> I got a 30. And the dad's going, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> you're just like your mom. No, I'm kidding. That's just <laughs> bad. Sorry. You said, act like you're home. So that's what I would have said at home. And all the women would have booed me. And then I would have chided the men for not helping me. And anyway. They got a 30. Would you be happy with that? Or what if they said, okay, I tried really hard this year. I've got a 60 so far. You'd say, 60. And the other kid comes in and says, dad, I got a 100. In this case, the pastor, he's not 30-fold. He's not 60-fold. He's 50-fold. He's half. And then, you know, again, don't, don't judge me. I have a special needs granddaughter. We love her. I'm her favorite. That's, that's for real. Chris can tell you. I'm the, you say to her, Avery, who's your favorite? She'll look at mom, look at dad, and say, Papa. We've been through a lot. Surgeries. She had eight surgeries in the first eight months of her life. I mean, like, take the skull off surgeries. Like, we didn't think she was going to make it. So I understand special needs, okay? So don't judge me. But when I was in my 20s, I always thought people that were, you know, a little bit handicapped got gypped. I thought, oh, it's too bad. And then as I'm going through this, this awakening in Jesse's funeral, it begins to dawn on me. What if there's a girl who's 20? She's supposed to die when she's 20. The doctors say she won't make it to past 20, but she makes it to age 25. And her calling is to bring joy to every person that she sees. That every room she enters, her call is to bring joy to it. 
And so God didn't deal her all those other cards. So she doesn't understand politics and wars and she doesn't understand the economy and Brexit and all the complicated things related to all that kind of stuff. She has no opinion. She doesn't care. She doesn't understand it. Instead, when she walks in the room, everyone she sees in there, she loves them all. She brings joy to every single person and she lives an extra five years. Bonus, she dies at age 25. On the same day the pastor dies. And she stands before God and God sees her and says, oh, honey, I have loved you before the foundation of the world, before your mom and dad had you. I've been waiting for this day. And when you were born 25 long years, I've waited to see you. I love you so much. And your gifting, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I'll make you ruler over much. Pastor, yes, Lord. Do you recognize her? She looks familiar. Well, she should. She was in your church. So from the rest of eternity, follow her. I came across this passage. It became my life verse. This is the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he said, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now let me just show you two words that just undid me. It's these words, if only. I'm not sure what translation I sent you, but it's in my life. If only. See those words? If only. I may finish the test. This is Paul. Paul is meeting at this moment. Paul is meeting. When this is written, Luke writes it in the book of Acts. Paul is, has already completed his three missionary journeys. He's really on his fourth He's on his way to Jerusalem with a gift he's going to bring to the people in Jerusalem. And then he, then he hopes maybe to go to Rome and Spain and all that kind of stuff. But he gets arrested. He's going to spend two years in house arrest in Rome. He's going to be released for two years where many scholars believe he went as far as Spain to preach the gospel. He'll at least preach the gospel for two years. Then he'll be in Mamantine prison for a few months. I've actually been there in, in Rome where he'll be beheaded. And he'll meet Peter in that same place, probably, at least historians think so. And they'll meet there. Peter will be crucified upside down. And and Paul will be beheaded. But he said that he's written probably 11 epistles by now. He's done all kinds of miracles. He's planted all kinds of churches. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. He said, the last time you're ever going to see me, he says this, I consider my life worth nothing to me. As I read that, I thought, I'm not there. I'm not there. Watch what he said. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race. In the scripture, the race is a, is a metaphor for the Christian life, for the calling that you have. What Paul is saying is, listen, I don't care about anything else except this. I hope I can finish my race. He's holding out the possibility that he may die before his race is over. If Paul can say that, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. See, the truth is, the race is individual. You can't judge me for my race, and I can't judge you for yours because my race is not your race, and your race is not my race. We do that far too often. We compare with somebody else. We get jealous about somebody else. We get boasted. We boast up because we think we're better off than somebody else. But the truth is, 
It's my race and it's your race. So I can't judge you on mine and you can't judge me on yours. The race is individual. The task is corporate. That's another sermon for another day. We need each other. We need to be in the body. I remember struggling with this and I made one life-altering decision. I can remember when my wife sent me to the store to get some lettuce and milk or something. You know what I'm talking about. You get sent to the store. Anybody here ever get sent to the store to get stuff? You know, almost every crowd, I ask that question, 99% of the people that raise their hands are men. You know why? Because we don't get to send the ladies to the store. So can I just say one thing on behalf of the men for just a moment, and I'll get back to my message. When you send us to the store, and we come back with extra stuff, okay, that's going to happen. You don't want that. You know where the store is. <laughs> Just saying. So we bring extra stuff back. But my wife sent me to the store. And I was dazed. I, I knew this wasn't just a quick prayer. Okay, Lord, I dedicate my life to you. Okay, Lord. It wasn't just an altar call. Go forward, make a little prayer. Go live life like it was yesterday. I knew that everything about my life had to change. I knew everything. I knew, I knew what God was saying. Everything has got to change. So I, I parked the car in the middle of the parking lot, big giant parking lot, which we have. Sorry. I remember leaning on partly on the roof of the car and the door of the car. I'm sure people driving in there said, there's something wrong with that man. He's getting sick. But I was just, I was there for a while. Finally, I slammed the door and I said out loud, I will not be mediocre. I'm going to go for it. If my wife decides she's only going to go halfway, I'm going to go for it. If my kids decide I'm only going to go halfway, I'm going to go for it. If my Bible college buddies decide to, to get a little flaky or to go half, half, half for God and half for themselves, I'm going to go for it. Lord, I will not be mediocre. One life-altering decision. Let me read to you one more passage, and then we'll, I'll tell you one more final story will be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Watch this. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Another, another, another translation says, run in such a way that you may win. You may think, well, he's telling us to run against each other. No, he's telling you to run against your prize. Run for the prize. Run in such a way that you may win the prize. Not, 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 there's not just one prize. There's a prize for you, Pastor Nick. You've got to run. Not like... He, it's not your wife's prize and her prize is not your prize you're not going to stand before God together I, I can't stand there and say Lord I was mediocre because all my friends were that ain't going to work Lord I was mediocre because my wife held back that's not going to work you got to run for your prize not my prize, your prize remember you go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you but your reward there is based on what you did with what you were given here Run in such a way that you may win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Back in those days, they literally had a wreath around their neck. Today, they do it for gold and silver and bronze. That's going to burn up, but what we're running for is imperishable. It is well done. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline. Watch this now. 
I discipline my body and I bring it under control lest after preaching for others, watch what he says, I myself should be disqualified. This is Paul. By the way, Jesse, God told me, he's already heard well done a good and faithful servant. Took me years to figure out the extent of what that meant. Because everything about my life and the way we do church and all the stuff we've done over all these years comes from this moment. I made a life-altering decision to go all the way, take risks. And honestly, a lot of that stuff I prayed for, I'm just telling you the truth, we've done that. We haven't planted big churches, but there's 1.2 million underground house churches in the Middle East that we've had a part of planting. not us, it's it's God. See, Jesse changed my life. Think about it. So if you get anything, listen to me now. If you get any, even just a little something from this message, some of that goes back to Jesse's credit. Every church we plant, every book I write, every person that gets born again in the last year was 1,990 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ in one of our church services. Every single one of those goes to Jesse's. Think about it. He lived three days, and he's still collecting on a three-day life in heaven. Can you believe that? When I get to, yeah. When I get to heaven, I want to meet Jesus and all the boys, Paul and Peter and all the rest, but i got to look up Jesse. In fact, he'll probably look me up because he's going to say, I want to see the finality of my reward, at least from your life. And if God does something in your life because of this message, that goes to Jesse's count too. Gosh. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, Paul said, and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. You ever wonder what happened to Paul? You say, yeah, he just told us he, he died in maritime prison. Emperor Nero. Yeah, but did he finish the race? Do we know? His last epistle was written to his son of the faith. The last thing he ever wrote in his life was 2 Timothy chapter, well, 2 Timothy. Chapter 4 is the last chapter he ever wrote. I read to you from, and if you read the book, it's, it's like a father to a son, but it's also like the passing of a baton. Verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a reward, a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, here's the good news, but also to all who love is appearing. That crown could be yours too. But you're going to have to consider your life worth nothing to you. If only you may finish the race. There's a movie I can't recommend. It's got terrible language and a little bit of violence. It's 
called The Untouchables. It's a fictionalized account of a true story. The Italian mafia was huge in the United States in this particular era. And Chicago was basically owned by a mobster named Al Capone. And they couldn't take him down. Eventually, the government sent a treasury agent named Elliot Ness to take him down, but not with a gun. They figured that Elliot, they figured that Capone had not paid taxes on all the money he made illegitimately, so they would take him down that way. In the movie, they fictionalized it, and they let Sean, um, they let Kevin Costner, who played Elliot Ness, carry a gun and all that, but in reality, he didn't. But the story still is, at the root of it, true. Elliot Ness made several attempts to bring Capone down, but couldn't do it. Seemed like someone always got there first and told Capone what Ness's plan was. And one day at the end of a failure, Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner, standing on a bridge, and an old beat cop, played by Sean Connery, comes up to him and says, why are you on the bridge? You look so despondent. Are you getting ready to jump? I don't need to fill out the paperwork on someone who jumps. Say no, I'm the treasury agent. I'm here to take down Capone. And the old beat cop laughed. Said, well, that's, the problem is everybody in the police force in Chicago is paid by Al Capone. Except me. And Elliot turns to him and says, I wondered why you're such an old cop and you're working a beat. He says, because they're against me, because I'm an untouchable. Capone can't touch me. I haven't taken any of his money. Are there any more like you? Yeah, there are a few. So they built a little coalition, four or five guys who are untouchables, and together they took down Al Capone. Here's what I want you to get from the story. At key times in the movie, when Elliot Ness really didn't understand the magnitude of what he was facing, Sean Connery, the old beat cop, would pull him aside, and in his beautiful Irish brogue, he would say, what are you prepared to do? put his finger in Elliot Ness's chest. Do you understand that if you walk through this door, life will never be the same? Do you understand the magnitude of the decision you are now making? What are you prepared to do? Unfortunately for the history of Chicago, every single time Elliot Ness made the right choice. But I want to ask you, what are you prepared to do? You go to heaven based on what Jesus did for you, but your reward there you're well done it's based on what you've done with what you were given here say Michael am I too far behind I don't know what race you're on I can't answer that question but I can say this you can decide what you're prepared to do let's bow our heads I'm going to pray a prayer somewhat presumptuously because I'm going to ask you to repeat it as if you feel it and I don't know if you do or not but I'm going to ask you to pray it this way anyway We're going to pray Paul's prayer back to God. Say, Lord, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Lord, better than that. Lord, come on, better than that. Lord, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race, the race you built me for. 
and finish the task that you've given me. Lord Jesus, my life is not my own. I'm bought with a price. Come on, I'm bought with a price. I belong to you. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together, shall we?